You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your hosts, Chris Jennings and Dr. Mike Brazier. Joining me again today is my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Mike, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How you doing? Great. Doing great. Okay, so we are going to continue with our species-specific series here, and this specific species I'm pretty excited about because it's one of my favorite species, the green-winged teal. Mike, do you want to provide just a little bit of an intro to the green-winged teal before we get into the details? I sure will. This is a, a pretty neat little bird here. I was commenting here before we started. Um, it, there's a lot of neat aspects to it. It's, I don't know, just always pretty cool little little bird to talk about. The American green-winged teal, uh, let's kind of start there uh, and, and guess rotate into a little bit of the taxonomy. It is, uh, there are two subspecies, hmm. you could say, of green-winged teal, the American green-winged teal, and then I guess the Eurasian green-winged teal. The uh, American green-winged teal is um, Anas creca carolinensis, and then the Eurasian green-winged teal is um, Anas creca creca. Hmm. So uh, there's some some debate about whether those should be two distinct species, but uh, right now they're just sort of recognized. Most people acknowledge them as two uh, two subspecies. The green winged teal is the smallest of our dabbling ducks. It uh, coming in at about a half a pound to maybe a pound on a good day. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it, it has a pretty wide distribution. I know we'll get into that a little bit later on. One of the other things that I'll say here is I walk down to the studio, I stop by that that map, that sort of old 1930s map showing each of the each of the species from from back in the day when it has their scientific name on it. And I've referenced it in, in a few other episodes talking about the red legged black duck. That's mm-hmm. that yeah. I'm talking about the poster where we got that reference. On that poster, the green winged teal uh, is it's identified in the genus Netion, N-E-T-T-I-O-N. So yet another one of these species that's kind of gone through some different taxonomic yeah. classification. Um, but yeah, the green-winged teal is a pretty neat little bird to talk about it. Obviously, it's uh, we have, uh, within Ducks Unlimited, adopted the green wing as sort of our, our, our moniker for our, our, our youth, our, our green wings. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, because it's a neat little bird and the smallest bird of Smallest duck of any that we have here in uh, smallest dabbling duck, I should say, yeah. that we have here in North America. You know, one thing that's that's interesting about the green winged teal that I, I would like to point out is very rarely do waterfowl hunters misidentify the green winged teal. It's a very obvious bird. Now, you know, the you can get into some appearance, um, you know, specifics, but. Uh, you know, the, the male obviously is very obvious. Um, the, the drake's plumage, especially as you get later in the winter, is very obvious. But the hen is kind of a, it's a, it's, it's a very drab, but that green wing is, is very obvious as well. So that's something that's interesting that, you know, there's a lot of species that are misidentified. Uh, and we've had that discussion in another podcast, but this, this one is not one of those. So yeah, yeah uh, it's very obvious for people. Yeah, you're right. And so, if you don't know what a green-winged teal looks like, go uh, go look it up. We're not going to try to do a whole lot of description of it, other than you know the the male during the during its breeding plumage has that bright cinnamon head and has that green sort of crescent teardrop shape um, coming starting at the front of the eye and then kind of uh, tapering back to the neck. And um, yeah, the iridescent green speculum that's present on both the males and the females. Interestingly, one of the sort of physical appearance differences between the subspecies that I referenced that the American green-winged teal has this white vertical stripe towards the front, towards the front of the body, sort of on its, um, on its, not really its flank, but sort of on its, on its side. Uh, the, the, the subspecies in Europe lacks 
that white mm. uh, vertical bar. So yeah. uh, one of the other very distinct markings on green wing teal, the males anyway, is that triangular cream shaped, uh, that triangular cream colored marking towards the rump mm-hmm. on the sides. So it's very, very distinct. Uh, the a very stark black rump on the uh, on the male, but that uh, has that cream colored triangle there on the on the side of the rump. Pretty cool looking little distinct mark. Yeah, and you also threw out a little fun fact that uh, and that the green winged teal is one of the only species that can scratch <laughs> while it's flying, and I found that to be very interesting. Allegedly, so I, I I do a bit of reading leading up to some of these to. Try to locate some of those fun facts. Also, just to make sure that I don't uh, mess something up when I'm talking about these species. And yeah, that was a nugget that that came out in a couple of places. The only duck species that has been observed in flight to scratch, and I think it was scratching its the well, and I sound like multiple observations mm-hmm. of that occurrence, and presumably scratching something off its bill, maybe leeches or something of that nature. That's pretty cool. I don't know if that's just an observational bias thing or if that is really just the only species that has that unique skill. Now you can impress everyone in the duck blind when green wings fly by and you're like, did you know? Did you see that one scratching its bill? Did you know that that thing can scratch its bill while it's flying? That's pretty awesome. Uh, Let's get into distribution here, Mike. You know, one thing uh, that, you know, Everyone throughout the country pretty much is familiar with green-winged teal because of this species' very wide distribution. Um, let, let's talk about that a little bit. We will start out with breeding distribution. It is another one of these species that's largely uh, northern hemispheric. You, you might find a few down in the southern hemisphere during winter, but for the most part, their, their entire life cycle is, uh, is in the northern hemisphere. They, they occur both in North America as well as uh, Eurasia. They, uh, they breed in northern latitudes. They are most abundant in, um, in the boreal forest regions mm-hmm. in, in Alaska. And this, you know, the, the, around, the, around the globe, circumpolar, they, they are uh, in, that, in those northern latitudes and really have an affinity for the boreal forest, somewhere in the neighborhood of 55 to 70% of their breeding population, at least based on the numbers that we have here in North America, will occur every year in the boreal forest. Um, that includes the western boreal forest, eastern boreal forest, and portions of Alaska as well. And then the remaining 30, 30 to whatever it would be, 45% are going to occur in the, in the prairies and prairie parklands mm-hmm. and a few other areas, the other breeding regions. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and that's going to depend on drought and all that kind of stuff, uh, habitat conditions in those regions. So that's their breeding distribution. And winter, winter distribution, migration distribution is going to be pretty much across North America. There are going to be some yeah. hot spots, and we'll talk about those, but there's about 10% of the population that will continue south and winter in Mexico. Um, their greatest concentrations are going to be in the Mississippi Flyway, a good chunk in the Pacific Flyway and Central Flyway, and then a smaller number in the Atlantic Flyway. Um, but uh, yeah, that's their that's their general distribution. They are a, um, I guess the the takeaway there if people want to want to take away some key piece of information regarding this species, it's just their their close tie to the boreal mm-hmm. uh, the boreal forest. Yeah, I always found it pretty interesting that these are, you know, one of the smallest species yet they're they're willing to go. You know, they're hardy, I guess I should say. You know, they're going up into areas that, you know, they're breeding in areas where it could potentially be really cold. Um, and they they hold out. I mean, they're not afraid to stick around. You know, you see them in icy conditions during hunting season, things like that. I mean, these are some pretty durable birds. Um, but let's kind of transition into that spring migration and, you know, what these birds are doing. They're leaving the wintering grounds, heading back to the breeding grounds. I'm trying to paint you the picture here so you can uh, kind of get what I'm aiming for. As that process goes through, let's talk about, you know, everything from, you know, these their nest site selection to pairing, uh, things like that. So so let's, let's talk about that process as these birds return north to their breeding grounds. The green wings are pretty unique and interesting because of, because of their small size. And I, I, 
I can't explain every bit of why they do certain things differently than others. But, you know, you can, they're the smallest dabbling duck, right? Mm -hmm. They're even smaller than a blue-winged teal. But then you look at the migration strategy of a blue-winged teal and you would think typically that, all right, these smaller-bodied birds are not going to be able to withstand the the rigors of a very cold winter quite as well as a larger-bodied bird. And so naturally you would ask the question, well, why the heck do green wings have different migration strategies than a blue wing? They're even smaller than a blue wing. And I think our best understanding of that is going to relate to their ability to rely more on um, on plant-based mm-hmm. foods. And as well as they even here in modern times, they, uh, they do engage in a bit of uh, field feeding, uh, corn, rice, uh, maybe not a whole lot of field, dry field feeding in rice, I, I, but certainly in corn, the Texas panhandle, Southern High Plains, there's been a lot of documentation of green wings field feeding in there. So they do have a bit more flexible diet than do blue wings. That's going to be one of the biggest difference where we consider blue wings as a sort of an obligate wetland forager. They're obligated sort of to forage in wetlands just because of the way they've they've evolved. Um, So they have to be a bit more sensitive to those, the the freezing potential for wetlands to freeze. So anyway, that's a bit of an aside there in terms of some distinction on the migration between teal. Green wings tend to have, in stark contrast to blue wings, a more protracted, a more drawn-out migration. Both in spring and in fall, they will initiate spring migration as early as February and March, mm-hmm. kind of working their way back north. Uh, they typically arrive on the breeding grounds April and May. Uh, of course, earlier in some of those southern areas, that's all just kind of natural, natural to expect. Um, and let's see, when do they arrive? So they arrive in April and May, and then you'll see them start breeding around that time as well. And in terms of nest site selection, um, when they go north into the boreal forest, you're going to find them um, nesting in sedges, in rushes, typically very close to wetlands. Mm -hmm. That's one of the unique things. I shouldn't say unique things, but it's an interesting uh, fact about them. A lot of the studies that you look at report finding these nests within 20 meters, 50 meters, 100 meters of a wetland. Now, when they nest in the prairies, I think that that holds as well. They tend to nest close to wetlands. Not exactly certain about that, but I know from the boreal forest, that's what some of the literature says. In the prairies, they will nest in grasses or under shrubs and uh, they're an upland nester, mm-hmm. I think should be obvious based on yeah. that description, uh, like like m- most other dabbling ducks. And the other thing about them that I've kind of learned, if you look through the literature, green-winged teal are relatively understudied. Now, they have been encountered, nest of green-winged teals uh, are, are oftentimes encountered in any kind of study of nesting ducks in the prairies or boreal forests, but their nests are... Uh, occur at really low densities and apparently they are also one of the most well concealed nests mm. of all dabbling ducks ground nesting dabbling ducks which results in very small sample sizes from some of these studies you look, can look at some studies that report that are sort of indiscriminate in terms of what kind of duck nest they're trying to find and they'll find 2000 duck nest or 3000 duck nest over this study doing typical nest searching methods about half of those, 40 to 50% of those will be blue wings, but then maybe one to one and a half percent will be green wings. Yeah. So some of the nest, uh, nesting data, breeding ecology data, nesting ecology data on green wings is a bit sparse compared to some others. So, uh, up but on, I think that's kind of like, you know, almost like all of these boreal focused species seems, seem to have that in common just in the fact that it's really, and we've talked with Fritz Reed about this, um, it's really difficult to get into these vast boreal forests and and to pinpoint a handful of green wing nests in a 50 million square mile mm-hmm. forest. So yeah. um, I, I think that's a good thing to keep in mind for our listeners is, is just that um, these birds go they breed in places that typically not all of them but a lot of them breed in places that are very extremely hard to access yeah you're you're um, right you're definitely right about that i think 
I think the pattern for this species still holds, though, because if you have about 30 to 40 to 50 percent of them breeding in the prairies, you would expect to be able to find more nests than what mm-hmm. uh, what they typically do in some of these. Now, it may be that they're just not searching the right areas or something of that nature. But anyway, uh, the point is there, you would think for a bird as abundant as mm-hmm. it is, uh, that we would have a little more data on on the nesting ecology of it. And it's, so anyway, that's another little uh, tidbit. One thing that I should probably back up on, because I'm trying to think forward here, and I don't know when I'd be able to to uh, point this out, but pair formation, timing of pair yeah. formation in this species. Uh, I've mentioned for blue-winged teal, one of the reasons why they, one of the reasons why they don't pair until spring and then even sometimes once they arrive on the breeding grounds, it's going to relate to their smaller body size mm-hmm. and just the limited gain that they would realize by pairing early if from a female's perspective, you know, being able to have that male defending her, allowing her to forage more efficiently and pack on uh, fat and transport it back to the breeding ground. Smaller ducks have limited ability to do that. So, uh, green-winged teal also pair relatively late, not as late as, as blue wings, but they do pair a little bit later when, especially among the dabbling ducks, Pair formation in Louisiana, some studies documented it occurring in January. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there have been a few other studies that say they've documented pairing as early as December, maybe late November. So there's variation all across the board here. But I think as a general r- rule, these birds are going to pair a little bit later. That's going to relate to some of the, uh, the just lack of evolutionary advantage of a small bird pairing uh, that early. So they arrive on the breeding grounds in uh, April, May. Um, nesting occurs, it starts in May, mean hatch date, when you look across a number of areas, somewhere going to be somewhere around mid-June. Renesting for this species, they do mm-hmm. renest, but not as prolifically as, as mallards. Um, they, um, yeah, so they, they don't renest as prolifically as mallards. And one thing that I haven't mentioned on either previous two episodes, but we don't typically see what's known as double brooding in uh in in ducks basically meaning that if they, they won't produce more than one yeah. brood they will they will re-nest more than once if their nest is destroyed in early incubation but once they hatch a clutch of eggs and and start and take that brood into a wetland if it is, if they lose that brood it's very rare um, and I don't know how many times it's been documented, but not very many at all, where they would actually go back, nest again, and pull off another. Yeah. Another so if brood. the and nest is happen. destroyed, they yeah. will re-nest. But yeah. if they hatch that brood, you know, march them to a wetland, yeah. and then they're eaten by a snapping turtle or whatever, they, yeah, it's, they typically don't it's re-nest. It's going to be less likely. And I, I guess the distinction I should try to make there is when I say double brooding, the truest sense of double brooding is like raising two clutches raising two broods to to fledging or nearly to fledging that is very very rare it's probably not too uncommon if you lose a brood like early in the first few days or week that that may be early in the summer hen may try to re-nest um i don't know how common that would be in green wings but anyway just a little bit of an aside there on general uh, nesting ecology breeding ecology of waterfowl something we may get into um later on on a dedicated episode so Let's go once this bird, once this hen is on the nest. Um, you know, what is the typical clutch size? Um, and, and you know, how long does it take? You know, that's something that we always get questions about the mallard, which we address. You know, how long are these birds on the nest until these eggs are hatched? Um, and what are they doing once they're hatched? Average clutch size for green wings is somewhere between eight and nine, um, probably closer to nine early on those, those first nests. Another general rule with each subsequent nest that is laid uh, during the summer renesting the the clutch size the terminal clutch side is size is going to decrease mm-hmm. you know so but for those first nest average is going to be somewhere around eight and a half or nine you can't lay half an egg so let's just say nine <laughs> um, you can I guess <laughs> incubation period for this this species has been documented somewhere around twenty to twenty three days uh, like uh, like all dabbling ducks, diving ducks. Uh, we'll have to exclude whistling ducks from this. We'll exclude swans and geese. But for dabbling and diving ducks, it's only the female that incubates. Yeah. Um, you get into whistling ducks and both both male and female will incubate. Um, the female spends about 80% of the day 
incubating once she gets to that that stage. And the same thing applies with green wings as it does with the others, where during that laying stage, they're laying about one egg a day. Um, they will, once they hatch, they will fledge in 25 to 35 days. That's, uh, that's among the shortest fledging period mm-hmm. for dabbling ducks, for any dabbling duck species. Nest success for this species is going to be, as we understand it, fairly low, similar to other ground nesting yeah. uh, ground nesting ducks. Um, they breed at one year of age, like most other dabbling ducks and diving ducks. You get into the sea ducks and some of the other long-lived birds, and you'll see them delay breeding until maybe the second year. Um, they, in terms of the wetlands they use, nothing too special there. Um, pretty much the same as a lot of the other species, dabbling ducks that we've talked about or will talk about. Um, they, uh, they like seasonal wetlands. They like semi-permanent wetlands. Obviously, for brood rearing, you're going to need a wetland that's going to retain water mm-hmm. throughout the breeding season, throughout that brood rearing season, preferably one that has a good amount of emergent vegetation, maybe some submerged aquatic vegetation to provide a good forage base for the inverts that those little ducklings are going to be eating. Um, so yeah, that kind of takes us to the brood ring and fledging and what next? That kind of takes us right into fall and we're going to talk about that, uh, they, they that do, fall migration. Really. Yeah. So males do engage in a molt migration. There's okay. some, in, some yeah. indication that they do that and that's not going to be too uncommon across most species of ducks also. Uh, and it'll be most, most common or most, most prevalent for the males because they do not have any responsibility for caring for the broods and so they will depart the female once she gets into incubation and go off and start molting and getting ready for that uh, that southward uh, southward migration yeah and that's that's where the exciting part about green wings for me comes in is because that's <laughs> when you're starting to hunt them and that's one of the species that i it's one of my favorite species to hunt um, while it's difficult to really you know, specifically target green wings. I've always, you know, when they're there, they're there when they're not. And I think that has a lot to do with their fall migration. I mean, they're, um, you know, obviously opportunistic um, feeding, but I personally, you mentioned you've had some dry field, you know, um, sightings, I guess. I personally have never hunted green wings in any dry field. Um, And that's, I guess that, that was just surprising to me when you said that. Um, I've typically hunted them in wetlands and even flooded agricultural fields like rice fields. Things I, like and that. I don't know how common it would be to mm-hmm. hunt them yeah. uh, in, in in dry fields, but I just know there's been documentation of them taking yeah. advantage of that. Someone out there is going to c- start creating the full-body, fully-flocked well, field I, green-wing teal decoy. Our good friend Scott Stevens, Dr. Scott Stevens, has some green-wing silhouettes, I believe, I that he deploys. I, I know he did blue wings. Did he do green wings? Nah, You'll have to ask him next time you get probably. He's probably done about half a dozen or more species by now. Yeah. So as we get into the fall migration, these birds are are so widely distributed. But you kind of hinted at the point um, that there are some really, you know, kind of hot spots for these birds. And, and one of them that really sticks out to me, and I'll just bring it up, is um, that Pacific Flyway, C- Central Valley, um, and also even over on Salt Lake. Um, mm-hmm. I've hunted them over there and just clouds of green wings. Yeah. These things are fantastic. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful hunts I've ever been on. Um, but you're seeing these massive, I mean, sometimes upwards of 10,000 green wings in one big ball. And I was talking to the guys out there and they were, they're feeding on that plankton in the, in the great salt lake. And uh, we had some fantastic hunts, but what are some of the other hot spots that these green wings, you know, throughout the winter where people can kind of, I guess, meet the migration with green wings? Yeah, well, so let's talk about the the pace of the of the migration. I mentioned that their spring migration is a bit protracted, a bit drawn out. So is their fall migration. You know, we are, we, we have, m- most states, well, many states have a um, early teal season. And mm-hmm. you can harvest green wings in that early teal season. They're not terribly common in the bag. I think the harvest statistics I was looking at, around forty or 50,000 uh, green wings are harvested during that early teal season. So you can encounter yeah. them mm-hmm. and you can harvest them. But but their migration southward is a bit more drawn out and a bit, uh, a bit delayed relative to blue wings. Would you say that, that that is, with the green wings that are harvested... Um, let's say in Louisiana or Texas during that early teal season, would would those typically be, you know, the lower, the more southern breeding green wings? 
That's going to be my guess. Yeah. I don't know that for a fact. Mm-hmm. I think you could probably probably look at some band recovery data and get a uh, get a feel for that. But I'm not up to speed on on that. But yeah, that would make sense, mm-hmm. and that would also explain why it's a bit more protracted because these birds breed at more northern latitudes up in the boreal forest. They may get a little bit um, yeah. There's the timing of breeding may be about average, but uh, but yeah, they they're just the, their flexibility of diet just doesn't make them just doesn't cause them to have to get out of the northern latitudes as quick as, as uh, let's say, a blue wing mm-hmm. in contrast there. Um, so in terms of other areas, well, obviously you mentioned a couple of them there, but as we look, um, as you look through the Central Flyway and Mississippi Flyway, the Gulf Coast is going to be a, a very common, a very prolific destination for this for this species. I think some of the uh, some of the wetlands, large wetlands in um, in what is it, Kansas? I'm drawing a blank here. Yeah, some of the wetlands in the like in Cheyenne Bottoms. Yeah, that's area. the one I was yeah. thinking of. Some of those areas probably going to get a lot of uh, green wings. Uh, Missouri's probably going to get a lot of green wings. You'll find them. Up th- they're a rather ubiquitous mm-hmm. bird in terms of large concentrations, like what you mentioned. Um, I think you're going to have to go to the Gulf Coast. Um, There are probably a few of those other isolated wetlands that we've talked about, or not necessarily isolated, but significant wetlands that are going to hold large concentrations as well. Um, Arkansas is going to support a large number, but, you know, they're not really a forested bird. You hunt timber Mm -hmm. a fair bit. You probably don't see many in the timber, do you? Uh, You know, surprisingly, in traditional green timber, no. Uh, Very rarely. I mean, people do see them. And and a lot of that is because they've cut a big hole in the timber and that larger, you know, if you're in thick timber, um, like a real traditional timber, mallard timber hunt, um, that they're pretty rare. Uh, but you know, we've shot them in some of the larger holes and then, you know, there's some, some of those smaller kind of transitional, not true green timber, but maybe some of the smaller trees with some of the buck brush tile, you know, Mm -hmm. those reservoirs in Arkansas hold some. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've seen them in there, but it's not, common i mean you're not gonna you're not gonna fill a strap with green wings typically on a traditional timber hunt um but you know that's where we see them in the rice fields more than anything yeah. down there um but then also you know you get a lot of reports and you can probably touch on the harvest data um in chesapeake flyway or chesapeake bay mm-hmm. in the atlantic flyway um north carolina yeah shoots a lot of green wings yeah. too so I, I guess this just probably it, in those coastal environments yeah yeah they they do have an affinity for some of those tidal mm-hmm. systems that is uh, one thing that uh, is worth mentioning um that really shallow water anywhere you can yeah. find really shallow water for these birds and those tidal flats um they can be it can be really good for for green wings yeah and then i have buddies down in florida like even south florida they they put a herd on the green wings yeah um they those birds really want to get into the like you said it's a shallow uh, lots of submerged aquatics type habitat that they hunt in and, and it's uh and, and they they get a lot of them but they, they tend to get them kind of late yeah um but I, i'm just assuming that's geography i have to imagine it would be pretty fun to try to shoot green wings descending into a timber hole <laughs> yeah <laughs> just <laughs> grip it and rip it come flying through there we've had that we've had that happen before you know we have a small little area that um is not a true timber hole. It's just kind of a bunch of tall weeds and stuff and mm-hmm. some short trees. And they'll they'll come into that thing and it's a mess. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> ha- I'd say 50% of the time that happens, we're watching a flock of mallards up high and these green wings will just bomb in like 20 of them. You just, All you hear is just wings. Because they probably and, don't parachute in. They probably oh, just no, descend head first. In. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, most, I'd say 50% of the time we don't even get a shot. <laughs> so, but they, but it's always fun. Yep. Uh, let's see, um, um, food habits. That's one of the things that we haven't talked mm-hmm. about yet in terms of, especially during the winter, people want to know about that and how they can better manage their property. They're an omnivorous, another one of these omnivorous duck species, meaning they eat both plant and animal. During winter, during those migration-heavy energy-demanding periods, their diet is going to be dominated those by those foods that give them carbohydrates, which is going to be the uh, plant-based materials, and that's you know, seeds and other a lot of seeds, basically, mm-hmm. and some other vegetation to go along with that. Um, they do eat invertebrates. The breakdown from some of the studies that I've seen were about 60, 40 uh, plant-based to animal-based. And that plant-based, when I say plant-based, I'm talking about seeds, as yeah. you know, not just leaves and stems and things like that. It's mostly seeds. Um, but it can be as high as 80, 20 plant mm-hmm. to animal. 
Um, but of course, they need animal matter. They yeah. need invertebrates and things of that nature as well. They need the little clams and, um, or, um, yeah, clams, but crustaceans, things of that nature. Someone managing property saying, I want to create this habitat for green wings. I would think that one of the most important things to keep in mind is shallow. You got to have the right water depth. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Super shallow. A lot of times you find pictures of green wings and they will be foraging in mud. Yeah. So it's like, man, how can they get anything off of it? They have lamellar spacing, the spacing of their little, um, the, the, they're called lamellae. They're the little um, tooth-like the or the, the comb-like yeah. um, adaptations on the bills inside the mouths of, the, of these birds. They're finely spaced in green wings, uh, mm-hmm. allowing them to filter out smaller seeds. Um, their green wings actually have an affinity for some of those really, really tiny seeds, sedges, cyparis seeds, and uh, pigweed, and some of those other other types of plants that are just like incredibly producing millions and millions of seeds, but just incredibly small. And so uh, the, they're really good for those for green wings. And that type of habitat would all be generated based upon more of a moist soil approach. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yep, sparsely vegetated, um, you could say, but uh, shallow and, and lots of weeds and, yeah, just a good shallow, um, seasonally flooded wetland with a good amount of vegetation in it. Yeah, let's talk about survival. Um, you know, the survival of these birds and, and just throughout the season. I mean, I think one thing that to keep in mind is we've really had, similar to blue wings, um, the last 20 years has been pretty pretty good for green wing teal. Yes, it has, uh, and 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 in turn, very good for green wing teal harvest numbers for yes. waterfowl hunters. Yep. Um, but survival overall, um, can you kind of touch on that a little bit? Yeah. So we get our survival estimates from banding data. Mm-hmm. So if you've uh, harvested a banded bird and reported that band, thank you, uh, and encourage everyone to do that as always. Maximum lifespan record for a green wing. I think there's actually a couple a couple of them that are like really phenomenal records one is like 20 and a half years 20 Holy years moly. six six months yeah. i don't know where that dude was hiding out yeah. i don't even know if it was a male or female but wherever it was it found the right place and, yeah um then i think there was another one like 25 years uh, wow would be probably the one. that one might have actually been in europe i can't remember i was reading that the other day but i would uh, think the smaller stature of that bird would lend itself to be you know, to not have the ability to even that's right. live that long. That's but right. That's, that's typically pretty amazing. The, that's typically the way it goes. Smaller bodied animals typically have shorter lifespan. Larger bodied animals, and you can think about this on the spectrum. Think about elephants at the maximum mm-hmm. uh, end of this spectrum, or a manatee. You know, these yeah. big whales. They're just really long lived individuals. And of course, the smaller an animal is, the more that can eat it, the more susceptible it is to inclement weather and all sorts of things. So yes, the general rule is that the smaller an animal is, um, the shorter the lifespan. And that that applies also, you know, when within the within taxonomic groupings, the uh, average lifespan of a green wing is going to be shorter than that of a canvas back or a Canada yeah. goose or mm-hmm. a swan. Um, in terms of survival, annual survival, it ranges from about 40% up to 60%. Uh, meaning that we're going to lose somewhere between 40 and 60. Well, I guess the, the math there is going to kind of make that confusing. But yeah, uh, 40 to 60% annual survival. The juvenile females are going to come in on the low end of that uh, survival range at about the you know, 40, 45%. And the, 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 the sex and age cohort that's going to have the greatest survival rate is going to be the adult males. And that's going to hold true pretty much across all waterfowl Mm -hmm. species, or at least all duck species. Um, And in terms of harvest rates for, uh, for for this bird, we're looking at a pretty low harvest rate, surprisingly. It's somewhere around, uh, somewhere between three and and five percent. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, 3 and 5% based on some recent band recovery analyses that I saw. It's uh, in another, another persistent trend in harvest rates is going to be that uh, juveniles are harvested at a higher rate than, than adults. Um, one of the things that when you look at that analysis that I, that I just referenced on harvest and survival rates um, over the, I don't know, 20 or 30-year period, harvest rate increased um, – from the 90s at least through the, the about 2008, which is when that, that study kind of ended, that analysis ended, uh, the maximum harvest rate during any given year that that study estimated was around 8%. You know, so, yeah. 
So still, a harvest rate lower than what we typically see for, for most um, cohorts, age and sex cohorts of mallards. Those can get anywhere from like 6 to 12 or something of that nature. But yeah, green wings are harvested at a, at a pretty low rate, but they do have a pretty low survival rate, as I mentioned, which tells you there's a fair bit of mortality outside of harvest. Yeah, yeah. There's, I, I could imagine the, the hawks and... Uh yeah. Eagles. And, and, yeah. and yeah. there's also been some records of, of them succumbing to inclement weather, extreme mm-hmm. weather, um, which, again, smaller-bodied individuals are just not going to be able to pack on as, as, much, uh, as much reserves to withstand some of those really inclement weather conditions. And they might, may find themselves in, maybe more likely to find themselves in an in energetic pinch. Yeah. And I think a good example of that is I saw some things online where um, this February, when we had that real cold mm-hmm. snap yeah. and it and it you know especially down here in arkansas and north louisiana the, the, you get a cold snap and it something freezes but then it you know everything opens up by the next day or yeah. two where right. we had like seven or eight days right where it was locked up and i saw some videos online where there was pretty significant number of birds green wings you know they were they were showing images of green wings that had died on the ice oh really yeah, yeah. and and you know you, you see a dozen of them maybe yeah. but i'm sure there were more yeah you know they just uh, a dozen of them. but but i would imagine just their small size and in their ability their lack of ability to feed in that situation um really and they're so small they don't have you know the ability to migrate even further, you can have a difficult time getting down to the coast, things yeah. like that. So, yeah, uh, probably lends itself to that. But you know, another thing for that survival rate is, uh, you know, these are difficult birds to hit. Yeah, they're small, they're fast, um, very acrobatic, similar to a blue wing, um, and a lot of times they come in big flocks. I yeah. have, uh, I, I've noticed that that, especially where we hunt and kind of historically throughout my hunting experiences. Uh, you know, when green wings are around, they're, you know, dozen or more, you know, upwards of, I've seen flocks upwards of 200, 250 mm-hmm. that'll dive bomb the decoys. Yeah. And, uh, and then it just, it's a mess. You gotta be sh- careful. Yeah. Another one of those where you gotta pick your shot, right? That's right. It's a, it's a mess for shooters, especially young and inexperienced shooters. Um, because the targets are so small and there's mm-hmm. so many of them, they're going everywhere and you end up with boom, boom, boom mm-hmm. and nothing. Or else you boom, 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 and a whole bunch, and you start counting, and like, oh, oh that is a good <laughs> reminder. That is a very good reminder <laughs> I see, because I, I have seen, seen that where there's two or three guys hunting, and you know, a big flock of green wings come in, and people, you just and they square them up, up, and they ball up right at the last. And second. all of a sudden, as soon as they start hitting the water, you're like, we are counting birds right now to make sure everyone <laughs> has the correct amount, yep. um, and we're staying legal. So that does that does happen quite a bit too yep. you know a lot of misses but when you do hit you usually hit very very well um you know let's talk about the population status before we do that i do i have some harvest st- oh, statistics okay. yeah. here so we talked about harvest rate um but uh, harvest in terms of um yeah in ter- overall number of green wings harvested on average over i think like the past 20 or so years may not be going back that far that's about 1.7 million harvested across the U.S. That's a pretty and, high uh, number. It is. It is. Um, it it's it's not it's accounts for 12 percent of total duck harvest, and right up there with gadwall as number two, yeah. sort of year in and year out. Those two are, are fighting back and forth mm-hmm. for the second most harvested species. Probably over the past 20 years, you get past uh, farther back than 20 years. I'm not sure how those numbers break out, but nevertheless, um, uh, not uncommon th- for them to be the second most heavily harvested uh, duck species in in North America. About as I mentioned at the outset, about uh, forty thousand uh, uh, birds are harvested. Green wings are harvested in September in mm-hmm. that September teal season. I don't know what the distribution of that harvest is. My guess is it's going to be at more in more northern states. I, I just don't know. You know like mm-hmm. that early harvest, I could probably get that data. Um, but, uh, but given that they're more protracted and slightly delayed migration, I would think there might be a bit more of a skew of that harvest yeah. occurring in, in some of the northern and mid-latitude states that have a September teal season. Uh, so then the residual of that, the remainder of that, the 1.68 or so is going to occur in the regular duck season. Um, they are the number two most harvested bird, uh, species in the Pacific flyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and matter of fact, when you look at California, yeah, in some of the more recent years, they have been the number one most harvested bird. And there's a big story there as well. When you look back, uh, 
20 or so years ago, pintails were the number one most harvested bird in, in California. And of course, that has that's no longer the case. Mm-hmm. We have some um, bag restrictions and, and we've seen a decline in total pintail harvest. And then mallards took over as the number one harvested species in California. And and then here over the past few years, we've actually seen green-winged teal be the most heavily harvested um, species in, in California. And there's one county out there, Modesto, Merced, maybe it's Merced, Merced yeah. County, that, that probably leads all counties in North America and in the U.S. in terms of green wing harvest. I think I have that county right, but it's one of those uh, Sac Valley counties. Or, Just hammering on the green wings out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that also, you know, and, and that those numbers are high and and very significant for waterfowlers, you know. Um, but I think it also lends itself to, I've been in situations where, um, you know, when you do have green wings, and, and especially in the Mississippi flyway, it's you hard can, to pass them. Up. You can shoot six of them, <laughs> so you know it's like all right. It's hard right, to pass. We're going to do this. Unless, we're going to do you it. Know, yeah, yeah, unless you, you know, know you have good prospects for for mallards or pintails. Or that's of course, right. You know, pintails. You can't shoot very many of those. Yeah, so I mean you're at one there. On um, and um, so you know, and I think that that lends itself to because you know we've done that a few years, a uh, f- couple years back in Arkansas. You know, we're everybody in Arkansas wants to shoot mallards. I mean, it's yeah. a green. It's you know the greenhead's the name of the game, but I'm. I'm perfectly fine, yeah. you know, shooting my six green yeah. wings and, and going back to camp. So, um, you know, I think that that also lends itself to that higher har- yeah. the higher harvest rates. Which uh, which which state do you think is responsible for the greatest green wing harvest? Mm. Only like two or three logical choices. Yeah, I'm gonna say Utah. No, you don't think? No, California. Oh, well, California, or Louisiana. Those have kind of. Fought it out back and yeah. forth here over the past few years for for one or two. Um, I think Utah would be. There's just not a lot of people hunting out there. Yeah, you're probably right. Right. Yeah. If they had if they had more pressure, yeah. you're probably right. I bet if you compared it to hunter days of field, oh, see there you there's go. Harvest. You're try, trying to find a way see? to make your yeah. comment be correct. Yeah, I am. It's always I am. Yeah. a way to adjust something. And, and I'll to make be honest, correct. that was I was a bonehead <laughs> move on my part because if anyone ever asked what's the number one state for any duck harvest, nobody you ever, always you, say California, Texas, <laughs> or Louisiana. <laughs> like that's it. Or Arkansas. Ar- yeah, yeah, yeah. In the past. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if anyone ever asks you those questions, always guess those three or four states, yeah. and you're probably right around there. Yep. Uh, in terms of where the majority of of green wing harvest occurs, it's in the Mississippi Flyway. You know, mm-hmm. despite what I just said about yeah. California being number one uh, in terms of states, forty five percent of the harvest of green wings occurs on average in the Mississippi Flyway. Uh, that's going to capture the Louisiana, the Arkansas, the Missouri. You know, yeah. those. Uh, there's. I don't know what the harvest is in in Texas. I didn't grab that number, but it's going to be in several hundred thousand. Yeah, I would, I I would say. say it's got to be high. Um, let's see. I think that's all I have on harvest st- statistics. So yeah, let's. Uh, well, then you know that being the case, you know, let's go ahead and transition into, you know, the conservation efforts and population status. Um, you know, we can talk about that. I'm sure you have those numbers pretty I handy. Um, I, I know we haven't had the BPOP for a couple of years, but we have some, you know, some data that you can provide. I do. Oh, I, I pulled some numbers here. And over the past 10 years, we have averaged about three and a half million green wings in the breeding population in the traditional survey area. That's going to be basically west, or west of the Great Lakes states. Um, the, yeah, the traditional survey area, the, the prairies, the parklands, Western boreal forest into Alaska. Uh, you're going to add a few hundred thousand, maybe once you, you look into the, some of the Western states, California, Intermountain West, uh, Oregon, Washington, maybe, uh, interior British Columbia, you'll add a few hundred thousand there, but most of those are going to occur in, in Alaska and the Western boreal forest. What I don't know, I don't have the numbers broken out separately for Alaska versus, the Western Boreal Forest mm. and, the, and the prairies and parklands. It's interesting when you look at where those birds go. If you look at the birds in Alaska, the majority of those are going to go down to the Pacific Flyway. But there is an interesting migration corridor for green wings coming out of the prairies to go into the Pacific Flyway by way of Utah through mm-hmm. the Great Salt Lake. That's that. Yeah. Uh, I forget what it is so twenty or so percent of some of those in. Alberta and Saskatchewan, or maybe about twenty percent in Saskatchewan, will actually make their way to the Pacific Flyway via the via the Salt Lake. Um, so there's some interesting migration um, patterns there. You add about a half million green wings in the breeding population in eastern Canada and the northeastern U.S. Not a whole lot in the northeastern U.S. Most of those are going to occur naturally, as you would expect in the boreal forest of eastern Canada. Uh, they are the 
fifth most abundant species uh, breeding population-wise. Mm-hmm. I actually thought they might be, when I get to looking into the number, I thought they might be higher than that. But yeah. uh, they're right up there with, I think, Shoveler. Kind of over the past 10 years, mm-hmm. they're about that same, uh, about that same, or maybe I'm thinking, anyway, Shoveler, Scop, Gadwall, they're right there. Yeah. Kind of fluctuating around that two, three, four, three, four, five range. Um, the peak in recent years is about 4.2 million, and that came in 2016. That That's going to be a, a mid-continent estimate, traditional survey area estimate. Uh, the North American Waterfowl Management Plan goal for this species is 2.1 million. Hmm. So we have been above the NAWAMP yeah. goal for green-winged teal for quite some time, and we continue to be so. They're a species that has shown a, a long-term increase since the basically the mid-80s. Um, it will be interesting to see what the population size is once we get back up in the air and start flying again. We, that's the collective we of the waterfowl management community. And, uh, and, but they are a, uh, a species that it's doing well in terms of conservation concern. I think we have to look, well, I mean, Naturally, we, we look to the prairies in terms of ongoing grassland conversion and wetland, uh, wetland loss. Uh, that, that's, that's always going to be a concern given kind of where we are with things. But the majority of this population breeds in the western boreal forest. So that's where we look for, for that and, and then into Alaska a little bit. But if we look in the western boreal forest, it's such an important place for this species. We have to think about some of the ongoing pressures and stresses that are affecting that landscape. And that includes some of the um, oil and gas uh, extraction that includes some of the forestry that's occurring in those landscapes. And that's why we and Ducks Unlimited and really our partners up north of the border, Ducks Unlimited Canada, are, are putting such a strong emphasis on some work in the boreal forest yeah. to ensure sustainable practices, sustainable harvest practices, and um, just working with all the partners that depend on that landscape to see if we can find the right balance between uh, utilizing the resources that it provides to to humankind, but then also ensuring that we do so in a way that will continue to meet the needs of the birds and all the other critters that depend on it. And so that's really one of the areas of concern. But uh, but nevertheless, green wings have persisted and have succeeded across that landscape in recent years. But we'll continue to keep an eye on that through a lot of the work that we do. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think it's one thing to keep in mind is, um, well, I think you mentioned the 30% in the prairies, the, the breeding numbers, you know, that other 70% is, you know, across the boreal. Yeah. And that is, and as we sit here in 2021, that makes a lot bigger difference because of the ongoing drought, yeah, you know, the drought sure. that's going on. So this species is unique in that, and that is a little more, I would say, drought resistant. That's is right. that safe to say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and that's a good point. This may be a year where uh, maybe in some years when you get some of those early flights of green wings, you might hold off on them, waiting out waiting out the mallards or some of the larger mm-hmm. ducks later on in the morning. This might be one of those years where you don't want to do that. You know, take yeah. advantage of the production that we think probably occurred with green wings and other boreal, um, other boreal nesting species because Fritz Reed was telling us how yep. conditions were pretty darn good up there. And so hopefully the green wings and other species up there took advantage of it. And hopefully we're going to see a lot of those uh, make their way south here. So enjoy them in terms of, and enjoy, by enjoying, we have to kind of close out here. I think we may be close to closing Yeah, we're out. getting there. Um, table fair. Yeah, that's Are we ready to go there? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's one thing that I have on my list as you go through your taxonomy and distribution and all your data. And I'm over here like, let's eat them birds. <laughs> yeah, no, green wings are probably one of my favorite. Um, they're awesome to pluck. Um, mm, yeah. and, and, you know, you can do anything with yeah. them. Um, it's a, it's one of those birds that is not, I, I guess I would say that it's not as rich. It doesn't have as, as rich of a flavor as some other species. And it's very mild. I use a lot of green wings to introduce people mm-hmm. to waterfowl, yep. uh, making maybe even some green wing tacos, things like that. That is a, that's always a success. Um, and, and, and I just You're great always, for roasting whole as well. Absolutely. You know, yeah, them, that's what I'm saying. Pluck them, roast them whole. Um, you know, they're one of those birds that I probably would not normally put in like a gumbo right. or something no, no, no. like that. No. This is something that I, when right. we, when we're plucking green wings, um, that's something that I have a plan it's for a these It's a taste birds. worth identifying and knowing that's what you're eating. That's exactly really, really right. Great. Yeah, it's awesome. And hey, you know, one more thing before we get out I don't even want to put them in uh, little 
little duck poppers either, do you? No, no, no. no, 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 you, yeah, no save the duck, save, save the shovelers or maybe maybe some gadwall. Gadwall can be too aren't too bad themselves. No, but I mean any duck, close. you can do whatever you want to with any yeah, duck. I wings, just prefer green wings. Yeah. You know, whole um, or at least even whole breast with skin on. You know, right. that's so a good So if you're approach. tempted, so I guess the take home there, if if any of you you harvest your 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 six green wings this this winter, if you're tempted to um, to put those in some duck poppers. Take a moment to pause and think about a different way of doing it. Yeah, we've got some slow-roasted duck recipes on ducks.org that you should probably check out. Definitely. Green wings is is a species worth doing that with. Yep. My last thing, uh, before we get out of here, I just want to remind all of our listeners, one thing that during the hunting season, when we're in the blind and I'm hunting with some of my buddies, typically when we call the shot on green wings, big clouds of green wings, you don't even say, take them. You just say, pick a bird, pick a bird. Keep that barrel on one bird and and take your shot because yep. they 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 can be humbling. So yeah, that, absolutely. All right, Mike, I appreciate you coming on today with me and talking green wings. I think everyone's probably picked up a little bit about this very unique species, um, including that they got to just whole roast them. That's right. I love to do it. It's a great bird to talk about. It's a great. I mean, it's it's a beautiful bird in so many respects. Such a small bird, but has so many unique aspects about it. So uh, so yeah, admire it, enjoy it for what it is. A great bird. Awesome. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier, for coming on the podcast and talking about green wing teal. I'd like to thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for putting the show together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for supporting Wetlands Conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.